Well, good evening again, everyone. So glad that you're here together this summer evening. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 18 in our On Again, Off Again series. In the book that Luke wrote, Luke, of course, is telling us the story of how the good news of Jesus is on the move to everyone, everywhere. Yes, really everyone. Yes, really everywhere. We're in the section of the book, the latter half, where the emphasis is on the everywhere. Paul is on the move here, there, and everywhere. And so now we find him in a city that may sound familiar to you. He's going to be in the city of Corinth. We're going to be looking at the first big chunk of Acts chapter 18. I'd like to read this big chunk for you, beginning in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens, and he went west to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. So these are refugees, these couples, this couple. So Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker, as they were, those who work in leather and build the kind of tents you're probably imagining, he stayed and worked with them. So every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. That's a dramatic way in his day of saying, I tried, you're on your own. That's on you. And of course, Paul, we're going to find later in this chapter, is going to still talk to some Jews and still go to the synagogue. But what Paul is saying very dramatically, he's having a rough day, is he's saying, I'm going to shift my focus for the Gentiles. They seem to beat me up less. That's where we're at. Now, pick it back up in verse 7. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. This would be a Greek person. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. These are Jewish people that said, yes, I want in, even the synagogue leader. We see in 1 Corinthians, Paul actually baptized this guy. It's a big deal. Pick it back up in verse 9. After Paul's rough day... One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, which is an old way of saying Greece, The Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. And just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, You know what? If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But... 
since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, namely, who's the Messiah? How do we observe this new way? Do we go to the temple? Do we eat kosher? Do we um, get circumcised? Since these are all an in-house kind of thing, he says, I will not be judge of such things. Settle the matter for yourself. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader. There's more than one. And beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatever. Nice, man. Just let them fight amongst themselves. Let's finish up with verse 18, this last section. So Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by, you see them again, Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sincre because of a vow that he had taken. So they arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So he's still working amongst his own people group. He's an in-between kind of person. Verse 20. So when they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And finally, as kind of a resolution to this scene and series of Paul's exploits, verse 23 says, After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Whew! The word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. Paul is moving and grooving. He is going here and there and everywhere. Interacting with different people groups. Some are responding. Some are rejecting. And in case you missed it, the last few pages or chapters, Luke interjects something vital at this point in the story. A word from Jesus. If I were to ask you, have you ever heard a word from Jesus? Does anything ring a bell or come to mind? Sometimes we can over-mystify it to the point where you might answer that question and say, yeah, I don't know that I've ever heard anything. And then sometimes you can oversimplify it to where you hear something Every moment of every day, you're constantly in conversation and you're talking about what you're getting at Walmart and where you're parking and what you got to do next. And you're hearing constantly from him. In my experience, I've been left somewhere in the middle. I've, there's, I've had a handful of times where I've really heard a word from the Lord and it was a word of guidance. And I remember a series in sequence in a three-year period that was a pivotal moment in do I stay or do I go? Do I keep on or do I bail out? And I remember years ago, Amy and I had just had our firstborn, Emma. And I had this sense, it was a Sunday afternoon while I was walking our little pug at the time. We had Doug the pug. And we lived in the White Rock area of East Dallas. And I was walking around and I noticed 
and thought about all the churches in our area and also all the neighbors that didn't go to any of these churches. And I began to think and walk and ponder, and I just had this deep sense that I could only describe as a release. And I had some sort of conversation with God that was short and simple, but I just felt it in the core of my being. And the resolution of that conversation was, would I stay open to leaving, to something next? And then later that evening when I was telling Amy about this, she began to tell me how she had nearly at the same time, the same feeling, and even had had a dream the night before. And so within this 24-hour period, we both had this deep sense of be open, you might be released. What happened in the next course of that year, in fact, the next day, set in motion a chain of events where we were discerning whether we were going to move to Canada or out of Dallas or where, but it sent me on a trajectory that would lead me to what would become the neighborhood church. But it was that openness that I believed was the penultimate thing to God moving and working. And had I not had that sense, had Amy not had that sense, I'm not sure that we would have taken that step. There was some moment of guidance and direction that Sunday afternoon 11 years ago. Then about a year later, I had this keen sense that after a difficult season of doubt and frustration, I had a really powerful encounter with the Lord. And the message I received was, you are my beloved son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. And it marked me so much that I marked half of my arm about it. The baptism of Jesus. These are the words that the father spoke over Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. And little did I know at that time that that was ushering me into a new season of ministry that would be planting the neighborhood church. And so about a year after that encounter, here's the third time I felt in a three-year sequence, I received a word from the Lord. And I was at a Catholic church in East Dallas because I've mentioned before, one of the things I love to do as I'm driving around town here and there during my week is to pop into these sacred spaces that are quiet and um, I can just recollect my scattered senses in the course of my day. I was at St. Thomas Aquinas off of Mockingbird in Abrams, and I remember feeling completely overwhelmed. I had just had days before what I now know was a panic attack, and I was begging God, shaking my fist at God, asking him for a step-by-step plan or a vision to cast or a clear way forward. I had heard that his word is a lamp into my feet. I wanted a spotlight tractor beam that went about eight miles down the road. And instead, I was sitting at that Catholic church, and I could feel, sense, so loud and clear. Guess what? You are my beloved son, whom I love with you. I'm well pleased. At which point I said, got it. Thanks. Have you seen this? And every time I sat still and would bring myself to another place, God, give me the way, give me this. You're my beloved son whom I love with you. I'm well pleased. And so I felt like God was cheating 
because that was the same kind of word pressed deeply into my bones, right on the top of my mind, but I said, I thought I had heard that before. But at that moment, it was a reminder that all of my doing must come from a place of being loved and identified as one who the Father loves. And so that word anchored me for the season that followed. I wanted a tractor beam marking the path eight miles ahead. And instead, I had a deep reminder that God loved me and that God was still with me. And I feel like this is what's going on with Paul. Paul had been in a season where he's received visions from the Lord before. In fact, a few chapters back, Paul had a vision and a dream that told him it's time to go. Not unlike my time walking around White Rock with Doug the Pug, he received a message from a Macedonian man beckoning Paul to come. So Paul got up, he was open, he was released, and he went and it set him on a new trajectory. And then much later, as we find in Corinth, in chapter 18, Paul is frustrated, shaking his fist, wondering how long he's got to put up with this. Maybe he wanted a tractor beam showing him eight miles ahead, but instead he got a word that was clear, concise, and spoke to the core of his being, reminding him that God is with him and that he is loved. So wherever you fall on the spectrum of God speaks to me every waking moment, or maybe it's a once a year or once every few years or once in a lifetime dramatic moment, in my experience and what I think we see hidden throughout the book of Acts is the way God tends to speak seems to be these three things, clear, concise, and to the core. I'm not saying that this is all the time and forever. Your experience may be different. But I believe that to hear from the Lord is the birthright of every child of God. And I think that perhaps when God speaks, I would bet that it's more clear and less confusing. It tends to be words that are rooted in the word of God. It tends to be words that call us up and don't necessarily call us out. It brings us to a next step. And even if it means repentance, it's not shaming. It's not demeaning. It's a clear, not confusing word. Because God knows we're struggling to understand. Secondly, I think that it's concise. I think that it's a focused word with fewer words. This is, again is just my experience, just my thought, and I see it throughout the pages, namely here in Acts 18. Think about how often God tells someone, do not be afraid. Thirdly, I think that when God speaks, most of the time it seems to be in our core it's deeply felt. It's deeply known. How many of you have had an experience or had Christians say, I just finally felt a peace that came from God? I just wonder if you've had an experience like this, like Paul. 
N.T. Wright says in his book, Acts for Everyone, which is a wonderful commentary series on the New Testament books that are just as readable in a devotional format as they are for preachers like me. But he says this, one of the many lessons Acts teaches us quietly as it goes along is that you tend to get the guidance you need when you need it, not before and not in too much detail. So far, is any of this resonating with you or you think that this is something that is too far afield? I know some of our charismatic brethren and sisters, they uh, are betting the farm on an interactive God. And I think that there's much to learn from them. But I would think that in our everyday life, it comes down to remaining open and listening and understanding that we may not get it before or in strong to-do list doses. But if we were to listen, we, like Paul, can hear something clear, concise, and that speaks to the core of who we are, and it's deeply felt. What we see is that Paul got what he needed when he needed it. Paul's going through his usual game plan, right? He goes to the synagogues because they're the faithful keepers of the story. They share a common language. They share a common practice. He was trained in their schools. He knows the foods they eat. He knows their second cousins. And so he's entering into the synagogues, and he sits down on a Saturday, and he begins to talk about how the climax of Israel's story is found in Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. He's not a failed Messiah because he was crucified. In fact, that reveals something of the heart of God that would experience death, experience suffering, so that he might show us the way through death and suffering. When he was raised, it showed him as the world's rightful Lord, and that everyone would come and find life in him, where they did put their faith and trust and follow his way. And so some people hear this and they say, this looks and sounds like the loving heart of God that we've always longed to see more clearly. Now we see it in the person of Jesus. And they say, yes, like Crispus and his family. Can you imagine how radical that is for the keeper of the story and the keeper of the synagogue to say, yes. And to take a radical step of faith and to say, yes, I'm going to go on this new movement with Paul and these Christians. That's a radical, risky thing to do. But he does it. He believed. And we see this in chapter 17 and others. These people are taking radical risks to say, yes, I see this is where the story was going all along. So some believe, but then some oppose. And that's what we see time after time. They start um, physically assaulting him and running him out of town. But can you blame him? Because they say, hey, we know this scroll in Scripture too, and it tells us we better go to the temple. And Jesus said, you don't need to come to the temple, you come to me. We were taught by our rabbis that the light of the world is the temple. We were taught that where the Holy Spirit resides is the temple in Jerusalem. Paul, now you're saying... We don't need to go to the temple for Passover like I have and my uncle has and my grandma has, like our people have for centuries. Can you imagine how radical this is? 
Can you imagine that Crispus, if he had another infant son, when he goes to Paul and say it's time to circumcise him, he says, actually, <laughs> you can or you, you don't have to. That's not the mark of the family of God anymore. It's baptism. Can you imagine when they go to their first church service and they have a potluck after their gathering and they see a Greek woman walk in and he knows that she has cats in her house and they're running around the counter and he imagines that that potato salad has cat food and she's Greek and I've never eaten something made that's not kosher and has cat hair in it. And Paul says, it's actually pretty good. And you're allowed to eat it now. Because we've moved beyond food laws. And give her a chance. It's got paprika. These are wild, radical risks. So we can't blame them for opposing Paul's message. Because to move beyond the marker of identity, to move beyond the center point of their worship, and to move into the table of people they've never shared a meal with is a big, big step. Paul has seemed to navigate this well enough. He gets run out of town, but he just goes to the next one. Lather, rinse, repeat. But what we find in Acts 18 is unusual. Paul had a usual game plan with the usual results, but now Paul has an unusual angst. I like to imagine after the end of a long day, Paul's packing his bag and he's frustrated and he says, I'm sick of this, enough of this. I'm so tired of getting beat up. I'm so tired of being rejected and unheard. Could you imagine walking in, in your own workspace, and being rejected with something you deeply are passionate about. You want these people that you love and care for to realize what you've experienced and heard. And not only do they not want to hear it, they actively resist, reject, and punish you for it. I imagine him packing his bag and going to bed that night. And then we hear a word and promise of Jesus spoken to Paul. Not before when he was getting punched in the mouth, but right when he needed it at his breaking point. This is what we read in verse 9 and 10. If you have one of those Bibles with the red letters, yours might be red. These are the words. First, do not be afraid. That, of course, is the most often given command in Scripture. And I think that do not be afraid, spoken of to Mary or Elizabeth or Simeon or fill in the blank, to Paul this evening, is an invitation to trust. Do not be afraid is, can you trust me with your fear and uncertainty? Can you trust me enough to look to me and keep walking. Because the next thing he says is, keep on. Don't be silent. Keep speaking. To which I'm wondering if Paul is experiencing this either as a deeply held vision in his mind's eye or a word that he feels in his heart. 
Whatever the case, I wonder if Paul is sitting there resisting and saying, that's what's getting me in the most trouble. But Jesus says, keep speaking. Why? Because number three, I am with you. Now this is important. This is so important. And maybe this is theory for some of us and more reality for others of us, but this is important. I believe that opposition and struggle and suffering do not equal abandonment or absence of God. I think opposition, struggle, and suffering do not equal abandonment or absence from God. However, in our lived experience, when we receive opposition, when we are struggling, when we are suffering, the first thing we think is, where did you go? The awareness of how our circumstances dictate reality is super important. You have to pay attention to that. That's why we need to hear him say, I am with you, even within it. The withness of God is vital because God was with Jesus in Gethsemane even when he didn't give him what he wanted and he still had to face death. Yet God was still with him. We have in Jesus a living, breathing, walking example of how God is with us even and in spite of opposition, struggle, and suffering. So when you're knee-jerk when circumstances appear and you are tempted to say, which is perfectly reasonable and rational, to say, okay, he's gone, understand that should not be the ultimate reminder. It's reasonable, but it's not ultimate. Okay, I may feel this, this may be my lived experience, but can I remember that you really are with me, God? Do not be afraid, do not be silent, I am with you. Now, the next things that are said are something deeply personal for Paul. This sounds more like when I was walking with my dog and I had this sense of, I have to leave. Maybe this is something that is only for Paul, only for this season. Because guess what? Paul is going to be harmed again. But in this moment, he's told, no one's going to harm you. Because number five, I have many people in this city. Which is to say, there are some now that need you, that need this community to surround you. And there are more that need to hear good news. But no one will harm you, and I have many people. That's a handcrafted, tailored message from a father to a son, Paul, that needed to hear this right at the hour of his angst and fear. I don't know, but as you look at that list, does that seem clear and concise and speaking to the core of who he is and his experience? I would say yes. I would also say that Paul receives this vision, this word, because Paul keeps the line 
open. Paul lives from a posture of openness and attentiveness. If there is one thing we see about Paul's life is that he is keeping the line open. Does that make sense for some of us? I'm young, but I'm old enough to remember when I pick up the landline and I get busy signals. I was too young to pay the bill, but I'm told you had to pay extra to receive the call waiting feature. Is this true? Sometimes you're just out of luck. Sometimes you pick up the phone and you cannot send or receive any calls. But there's something about Paul's life that he is always willing to hear, where am I going next? What are we doing together? Paul lives an extreme example of globe-trotting, powerful preaching and discipleship ministry planting churches, and going boldly in the face of opposition. But the question is still on the table. What does that kind of openness and attentiveness look like in my life? You know what's remarkable about that haircut at the end of 18? Did y'all catch that? Before he left, he cut his hair. What's up with that? There was a Jewish practice of keeping vows that said you would not cut your hair until. There was also a practice where you would not cut your hair or do something as a reminder of how God intervened in your life. I think Luke wants us or expects us to know why the haircut is a big deal. I think, and some scholars infer, that after he stayed for 18 months, he goes to the port at the edge of Corinth, in a little gulf of Corinth before he moved on, and he cut his hair as a reminder that God was faithful to keep his promises for the year and a half I stayed here with this community. No one harmed me. No one booted me out. And I see moment after moment of God's withness, even in spite of the roller coaster of this last season of my life. I don't know how long your hair grows in 18 months, but I just wonder how important it was for Paul to have a tangible reminder of God's promise and God's goodness. Because he was open that one night when he was at his wit's end, when he was the most frustrated, he was open enough to know, stay put, you have work to do. And just before he leaves and hits the road to another place, he cuts his hair, knowing and trusting what we got next. What does it look like in my life for that kind of interactive open way forward. In the summer, it seems like our rhythms change. And maybe it's because I have kids and I really feel it because they're there all the time. But maybe you feel a little bit unmoored in your normal rhythms. So I want to offer you as we close just a reminder of what it might look like to be open and attentive. And I want to give you permission this summer to keep it simple. Stay open. 
I think if you play with these five ingredients throughout your day, I think you can receive a kind of posture that is open and attentive for what God might have for you in a season where you need to hear from him. The first is stillness. I hope that you don't throw that baby out with the bathwater. That was something that is under uh, represented in so much of evangelical devotional life, but you find mystics and Christian authors and spiritual writers, stillness and quiet and solitude was synonymous with spiritual maturity for the first 1,500 years of the church. If you found a holy person, you found someone who was devoting themselves to quiet and stillness. What would it look like for you to set a timer for five minutes each day, just to breathe deeply, to focus on the presence of Christ who is with you, even in that moment, to bring your heart level down, to be attentive to the one who is with you. And then maybe from that posture of stillness, you can engage with scripture that you might hear something. Read a psalm each day. You can find on our website in the sermons and resources tab, a psalm reading plan, a gospel reading plan. Find something that keeps you grounded in the story that God has given to us. You can say thank yous. You can say would yous, number three, number four. Anne Lamott, a Christian author, said, and I've never forgotten this, that the two most basic prayers are gimme, 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 and thank you, thank you, thank you. I think we've just cleaned that language up a little bit with our thank you would use at our church. Five, what if you would say what's been said? Also in our sermons and resources tab, we have a daily prayer liturgy. It's a front and back sheet of paper. That's like a track that we adopted and learned from Brian Zond. Brian Zond told us a story when we did prayer school with him many years ago that when he was at a critical moment, he needed God's guidance. He needed a word from him. He had a family member that was sick in the hospital. He snuck away to the chapel. And when he didn't have words he could muster to pray, he said his prayers. He said the prayers that he had memorized and learned and taught that began with Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God of Israel, God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, true and living God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Have mercy and hear my prayer. There's some comfort. When you don't know what to pray, you can say your prayers. Some people might bristle at that and say, yeah, man, but I want to freestyle on my guitar. And I would say, go for it. And maybe you can practice it with the Lord's Prayer that we say. You can say the Lord's Prayer, but then expand it as you go, taking each line as a prompt, our Father. And then finally, as on the screen here, you could say breath prayers. Here are some breath prayers I find myself routinely saying. In fact, I find myself saying them this week when I didn't know what else to pray. I just kept saying, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy. Have mercy. Here's one. Almighty God, creator and sustainer, I belong to you. Reminds me of my identity as a beloved child. 
If you find yourself in a period of dryness, you don't have words to muster, try, Holy Spirit, breath of God, revive my heart and renew our world. You say, what do I pray next? You say, Holy Spirit, breath of God, revive my heart and renew our world. And maybe in the saying, in the repetition, you begin to chew and meditate on these words and it brings your soul to a place of stillness and trust. The prayer I pray before I preach is this, Lord Jesus Christ, God with us, abide in me as I abide in you. Keep it simple. Just stay open. And like Paul, you might find yourself in a place of angst and worry and find that he might have something for you. Just enough light for the next step. Whatever it is for you, something that resonated from these prayers or from these guides, would you stay attentive because God is still working and calling us to him? Let's pray and then we'll respond in communion. Almighty God, we are grateful for this time together in your presence amongst us and within us. And we ask, Lord, that in these moments we have left, that we would believe the words we're about to sing, that you give us peace that passes understanding. But more than belief, would we experience this peace that comes from you, the giver of life and lover of our soul. Might we meet you in this song and at the table through Jesus Christ our Lord. Would you speak, for we are listening. Amen. Go out into the world in peace. Live as those who have already passed from death to life, from the old age that's passing away to God's kingdom that was and is and is to come. Give aid and be willing to receive it. Trust and be trusted. Forgive and be forgiven. Give respect and be respected. Love and willing to be loved. Give it all up to Jesus and find that everything is yours in return. May God's grace, mercy, and peace be with you now and always. Amen.